The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 122 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not my president or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So... Last week was a great show. I mean, we had a lot of fun. There was a lot of people tuning in to hear what my good friend and CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Vizzini had to talk about and what's really going on, uh, I guess, in cybersecurity news recently around the world. And there's plenty of plenty to talk about, of course. Kate I was able to break down a few things for us. She was able to break down what actually went down with the mobile app used at the recent Iowa DNC caucus. Um, and that's just a fascinating story. We talk about the technical problems with the app. We talked about the lax election security that was discovered following the vote uh, after all the, the focus came upon the app after it failed so poorly. And the, the chaos that ensued after the vote finished that has yet again raised concerns about the stability and security of the 2020 presidential election. So that wasn't it, though. In the second segment of the show, Kate went over the recent Senate report on election security, what's new in the report and what's relevant to cybersecurity professionals and consumers who are interested in their own privacy. And we talk about it all the time. And I know that a lot of people listen to the show because of privacy concerns. They want to hear what's going on and how different legislation and different regulatory laws that are coming out uh, and different trends really across the world actually affect them as consumers. And sometimes even things that happen over in, in, in Europe and Asia affect things with people in, in, in North America and so on and so forth. So it's really important to sort of be in a know if you really care about your privacy. And then in the final segment, Kay laid out for us what she knows about the Jeff Bezos cell phone hack and how Bezos's phone was compromised. And what information is now public about the involvement of the Saudi intelligence services in the targeted attack, which is... You know, just very interesting on its face, right? So last week was an amazing episode. It was a lot of fun. And if you missed it, it's never too late, of course. You just find your favorite playback medium and check out the TF7 radio episode library to listen to any episode at your convenience. That's CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fazzini on last week's episode. That's episode number 121 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to the episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. That's right. Just go to our new TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 radio episodes at your fingertips. And yes, this site has been updated, and uh, all the episodes are there. So it's very convenient to see them all, I think, in the format that they're laid out. So we have that update. We updated a few more things on the website. Um, and we're going to get a, you know, a couple different pages going on there. So I'm really excited about that. And, and so, look, if you get a chance, check it out, tf7radio.com. Um, and uh, you can see some news there. You can also search our guest library. We have a whole bunch of guests there. Um, we're in the process of uh, making sure that's updated this week as well. And uh, you can, of course, check out the news section. Um, there's, we're going to try to get notes 
together. So each notes for each show, we start referencing articles, we start referencing books, whatever. We're going to start, you know, hopefully get a notes section where we can put all these things so you can read uh, in detail uh, any any sort of article that we reference or, or, or a book that we reference or a show or whatever. So hopefully we can get that going too because I know a lot of people want to follow up on a lot of the topics that we talk about aside from our social media sites. But we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now, and we've made it super simple for you to find them all. And recently, we just uh, we just got hit on iHeartRadio too, so uh, that's that's awesome. And we were just really just everywhere at this point. Just hit the subscribe button, top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio site. So that's updated as well. And you could actually just put your email in there and hit subscribe, and then we'll make sure we send you updates so that you understand what's going on at TF7 Radio and, and TF7 as well. And uh, also keep up to date on everything that's going on in the news um, in terms of things that we talk about on the radio. So check us out, folks. Again, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So. Uh, of course, we got another great show for you this evening with another tier one guest. We just keep churning them out here uh, like no one other. I really don't think anyone can even come close to touching the, the quality of the guests that we have in the show. I'm very proud of that. Um, and I want to keep it going. Senior Managing Director and Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Ms. Jordan Ray Kelly is going to be with us this evening. Ms. Kelly has more than 12 years of experience managing cyber policy planning and coordinating incident response. At FTI Consulting, she advises clients on a broad range of cybersecurity and data privacy matters involving breaches and insider threats. She also does intellectual property, crisis communications, vendor management, and she specializes, of course, in compliance, regulation, risk management, and forensic investigations, which there's a lot of synergy between all these domains in the cybersecurity space. So prior to joining FTI Consulting, Ms. Kelly served as the Director for Cyber Incident Response on the National Security Council at the White House. During her tenure there, she was responsible for both national incident response coordination, as well as management of the US government's process for managing zero day exploits. She was also chief author of the National Cyber Strategy, the first of its kind in the United States in 15 years. So how cool is that to have her on the show with us this evening? Before joining the National Security Council in 2017, Ms. Kelly served as Chief of Staff and Chief of Strategic Initiatives in the Federal Bureau of Investigation Cyber Division, where she managed daily operations and strategic and policy planning for the FBI's National Cyber Program. Prior to her 10-year tenure at the FBI, she was a law clerk in the Office of General Counsel at the Y-12 National Security Complex at Department of Energy Facility in Tennessee. So, Ms. Kelly holds a bachelor's degree in English literature from Wake Forest University and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Tennessee College of Law, where she served as an author and editor for Transactions, the Tennessee Journal for Business Law. So, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Senior Managing Director and Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Mrs. Jordan Ray Kelly. Jordan, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Uh, hello, thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on here, and I got a whole bunch of questions to ask you today to take advantage of your experience in the government and in consulting, but first, I want to start out with some level setting. People always want to know, especially people in your position, how did you get into cybersecurity? What interested you in cybersecurity from the beginning? Well, I wish I could take credit for directing myself as a young person to the field of cybersecurity. So for everyone out there who has the opportunity to do that, I highly recommend you take a look at cybersecurity. But I fell into it more than, than having really an intention behind it. I was required in my undergraduate college to take some science courses. And to be fully candid with you, the computer science one, I took one semester of it and had a wonderful professor. And I ended up taking three or four more courses in that field and ultimately getting a computer science minor. However, I didn't necessarily plan to do anything with that technical education that I had gained. And I went on to law school and I ultimately interviewed with the FBI. And I was lucky enough to have a bit of an option of what part of the, the FBI I wanted to go into and focus on. And because I had that computer science minor, I expressed an interest in possibly joining the FBI's cyber division, and that is actually how I ended up uh, in the field of cybersecurity for the last 12 plus years. 
Wow, that's really interesting. So everyone wants to learn how people pivot, you know, in their jobs and how do they get to where they are. And we talk a lot about pivoting and career management on the show. So what in your, in your earliest jobs and the jobs that you took initially when you were younger in cybersecurity, how did they shape the professional route that you eventually took? I had the opportunity to join the FBI at a time when its cyber division was actually quite new. I was less than 10 years old. And when I joined the FBI in 2008, there was many, there were many cyber threats that were really taking off around that time. So for example, in 2008, Conficker was something that we were tracking as being right. a cyber threat. There was a lot of interest there. Right. I'm sure you've had other people talk about that. And one of the first opportunities I had at the FBI was actually to travel out to the FBI's Seattle field office and partner with Microsoft looking at the Conficker threat. And so really having the opportunity to join at a time when cybersecurity, while it wasn't entirely new, it was really beginning to take shape as a formal program within the FBI. And that, that opportunity to be part of something as it took off really shaped my interest in the field, kept me connected to the subject matter, and made it so that I never left the program in my entire time at the Bureau. Once you get in there, you get hooked. It's the best. That's right. <laughs> You, know, you, you get interested in, I guess it really grabs you. Once you really like what you're doing, you're really interested in it, then that obviously motivates you to do a whole bunch of different things in your career. Um, look, how do, how do you think the industry has changed since you first started? I think the industry has changed. It's really, when I think about that, I think really more about how, how has the threat landscape changed. Hmm. And I think when we think about different types of threat actors that have evolved over time, of course, threat actors become more sophisticated, right? Bank robbers of the early 1900s are not the same bank robbers that we would see today. But the, the threat actors have only gotten more sophisticated and then also haven't really been able to be held back at all by the normal constructs of laws, and regardless of what country you're in, but U.S. law, for example, hasn't really had a, a major impact on cyber threats. And so what I've seen is a threat landscape that's growing really exponentially and a field of people who are standing ready to fight that not growing exponentially, right? So what I've seen is I think the threat is continuing to grow, continuing to increase. The risks are going, going up and up, and I'm sure we'll talk more about who's really at risk here. But I think the biggest change is that we're not, we're not seeing a, a decrease in the, in the threats before us. So the good guys aren't keeping up with the bad guys, essentially. And is that because the, the bad guys are collaborating in a way that they, they've never had before? I mean, the, when I talk about collaborating, I'm talking about between or, cyber organized crime groups and nation states collaborating with each other. It kind of fuzzies the water. It makes IOCs more difficult to, to see and then to identify TTPs to a certain adversary. I mean, is that kind of thing that, a cause for the confusion, you think, or... I think the internet was built for collaboration, right? That's the history of why it is that we have an internet in the first place. And so I think there is a lot of natural collaboration that we see happening between cyber threat actor groups. So when one threat actor group develops a great tool or a great technique to use against a wide swath of people, they might be incentivized to make that available. So I certainly think that the, the collaboration that's really the underpinnings of the internet has had an impact on the cyber threat actors really growing out of control. No question, no question. So all these emerging technologies are coming out and I think you know, a lot of people don't think about the risk that these technologies pose when they introduce them into their, mark, into their uh, environment, uh, especially when they're introduced to mitigate, uh, as a mitigating control and to mitigate some of the risk that, they, that they're um, trying to prevent or trying to manage. So when they do that, and they don't think about the risk from these emerging technologies, and we're talking about biometrics and IoT and AI to the extent that it could even be used in cybersecurity, even cryptocurrencies, right? Which innovative technologies are facing the biggest cybersecurity threats in your mind? That's a really interesting question. I think when you think about technologies, I think that you really have to start by saying that we used to think of data as, as a concept. We used to think of data as an exhaust. And now data is really the fuel that's driving these technological processes. So leveraging these technologies essentially for, for bad purposes, for malicious purposes, is becoming a lot more common every day. And every time a new technology is introduced, there are always cyber threat actors looking to see how they can leverage it for malicious 
malicious purposes. And we're really not prepared to combat the bad uses of these technologies that we see and we think are really meant to make our lives better and, and make our processes more efficient. So all these interactions with these technologies, they produce data and that data is now the fuel and we need to be thinking about data in a different way. Uh, in terms of what we can do to do better, I don't know that there's really one perfect method because all of the different uh, entry points from a cyber threat perspective are different across these technologies. But what I think both manufacturers and consumers need to think about is not just that data is an output, but that data is something that they're putting into the system, that it's a fuel of a lot of different processes. And we need to understand what data we're producing and what data lives out in the world forever. I know that sounds like something your parents would tell you, right? That whatever you put out in the world exists forever. But I really think we need to be thinking about it on a much more regular basis and thinking about it in the construct of these new technologies. You know, it's interesting, you know, why do you think it's so difficult to get senior leaders to start thinking about the risk involved in these emerging technologies when they're implementing them into their environments? I mean, why do you think it's more, the, especially the business leaders, they just want to go, they, 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 I guess they see the value and, you know, there's a rush to, you know, use it for a, you know, some type of revenue purpose. Is, is, is that what's driving it or is there something else what, in your experience, what do you say? I think a lot of these technologies are, are fun and sexy and they have, yeah. they have really innovative kind of appealing, appealing to a board of directors uh, attributes, right? And so when you look at something that says, wow, I can do this in a way that's much more flashy, I can do this in a way that's much more efficient, these are all words and terms that, that leaders and boards of directors want to hear. I do think there are some things that are happening right now, both in the world of regulation, but also in, in the world just generally of corporate responsibility that are changing the way people think about that, but it doesn't really take away from really the the marketing appeal of a lot of these technologies and people want to be on the cutting edge. People want to be able to offer both to their employees and to consumers of, of their markets, the most cutting edge high tech solutions. And sometimes that comes at a cost. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question, you know, you got the white house behind you, you got the FBI, FTI. I mean, you've got a lot of experience. You've been in some really big positions. I want to know who the bad guys are. Everybody wants to know who the real, real bad. We know who the bad guys are, the usual suspects, you know, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China. But what, what, are, what are the most critical foreign and, and, for that matter, domestic cybersecurity threats that U.S. companies face in the coming year? Well, you name the big four, right? China, Russia, Iran, North Korea are always the four that we're thinking about, both from a sophistication perspective and an impact perspective. But I would actually say that since my time at the FBI and the White House, joining FTI, my perspective has really changed about the significance of the origin of the actor. So I hate to be a bit of a disappointment on this question, but I really think that people need to get away from thinking about who's behind the activity and think more about what their risk surface is and about what their potential impacts are. And I say this as from the perspective of someone who really worked a lot within the FBI to think about increasing the number of clearances that people in the private sector had to really think about increasing the information flow. So I absolutely value that partnership between classified information, the, of sharing classified information with all of the different stakeholders within the cybersecurity community. I think there's a lot of value there. But there are very few times when your behavior and your response either in a actual response or in a preparation way would be different based on who those cyber threat actors are. And so I think people really can get hung up in saying what country or what nation state might be attacking my business. So I think every organization needs to take the time to partner with the right organizations and entities to get information to learn about how they might be impacted, but to really learn about their own weak spots within their organization. They need to patch all the holes within their own dam and worry less about which direction the water is flowing from. But you're right to say that the big four are something that we're always thinking of. And then, of course, cyber criminals that aren't necessarily nation-state type are something of major concern that I do spend a lot of time thinking about and helping people bounce back from incidents that aren't necessarily tied to a nation-state. Uh, but again, I do think the, the origin is really less important and people should be really looking internally to see how, they, how they're going to be impacted by different actors. That's a great answer, Jordan. I got to ask you, do, do you think we're overclassifying information right now? I mean, is that part of the problem? Instead of giving out more uh, clearances, shouldn't we not classify some of this information? Does it really need to be classified? 
I think that we're actually not doing that. What I think is that people believe, and I think often incorrectly, that the classified information is is the keys to the kingdom. That that everyone thinks that those within the intelligence community and law enforcement and other entities that have classified information are withholding the information that would really make a difference when it comes to preparing and responding to cyber threats. Often, the most classified information is not really information that would be substantive about the actual threat. It's often more about the modality through which it was received or other other pieces that are that go into how intelligence is classified. And so I don't think that we're overclassifying it, but we're not doing a good enough job of getting the word out to the communities that having classified information is not going to be the difference between making or breaking and saving your organization. And so I think what we really need to do is focus on the good information that's out there. Most of the internet and the connected devices are owned by our private sector, which obviously doesn't classify their information. And so we really need to continue. I know information sharing, I've heard this quote, and I'm sure you have too, that information sharing is the thoughts and prayers of the cybersecurity community. And, and so people really push it, but sharing information from both sides and really helping to better understand on both sides what's most important is going to be what makes a difference, not classifying less information. All right, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break, but hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll immediately be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7 get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors and then we'll be right back with our special guest, Senior Managing Director and the Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Mrs. Jordan Ray Kelly. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. 
It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, Senior Managing Director and the Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Mrs. Jordan Ray Kelly. So, Jordan, I want to I want to kick off talking a little bit about critical infrastructure, um, and I'd like to know what do you think the United States needs to do to secure critical infrastructure and, and protect our citizens better? I mean, is there anything more that the government can do? Because I know a lot of the responsibility is actually on the private sector in this space, but what can the government do? So the government has done a lot in this space. One thing that they did is in the publication of the National Cybersecurity Strategy, there was a real focus on critical infrastructure and what needed to be done there. And a lot of it does focus on collaboration. As you mentioned, there a, lot, a large portion of what we deem our critical infrastructure in the United States is owned and operated by the private sector. So what the U.S. government can do is continue to share information to incentivize the right behaviors. This also applies to the rest of its infrastructure. There's a lot of challenges in the United States states in, in improving and shoring up infrastructure concerns. So I think that the U.S. government is, is well on its way to playing a role in the corporate responsibility that we'd like to see from all, all of the individuals who are tied into critical infrastructure. But I think critical infrastructure owners and operators also really need to recognize the need for proper protections of those systems. And that's going to require really in-depth reviews, vulnerability assessments, gap analysis of not just the actual controls and systems themselves, but what are the policies that they use to govern incident response, for example. Their employees who are working on the critical infrastructure systems need to be trained in cybersecurity, and they really need to be ready to respond no matter what challenge impacts them. So I think we have seen, you've seen in the news over the last few years, uh, fits and starts of interest in potential impacts to our electric system, for example. But I think everybody needs to realize what a, what a critical vulnerability this is, no pun intended, and really pay attention to doing everything they can to improve the cybersecurity of those systems. Yeah, no doubt. I'm going to ask you a question about uh, election security. It's something that I ask every, all of my guests because it's just so important, and I think everybody has different views that are so interesting. The 2020 elections are just around the corner. We saw what happened with the debacle in Iowa last week, but, but you, know, that, I, you know, regarding whether it was a security incident or not, it was still a technology problem, and it shows what can happen when there's a technology problem. Could you talk about what, what, what you saw during and after the 2016 election? And what people on the ground during this year's vote should be keeping in mind as they move forward. 
Sure. Well, I was part of the team at the FBI who was working all day on election day to ensure that nothing went wrong with our elections, to follow the news, to stay in touch with state and local officials, to just really be on the ground ensuring that everything we could do, including all the preparation we had done leading up to the 2016 election, would result in no impacts on election day. And so I think that from that perspective of, of having that day, having that high intensity, high stress, uh, we were definitely focused on actual incidents and incursions into the election, and we didn't necessarily think more broadly about how you don't actually need a hack for something related to technology to really undermine confidence in the election. So you mentioned Iowa, and it's really thank you for the softball uh, there, because I think that we learned a really big security lesson there. You do not have to be hacked. You do not need a computer intrusion for the people of America to, to really begin to doubt what they're seeing on their screens related to elections. So that we have a failure, what we understand now is a potential failure of a, a mobile app that was supposed to forward the caucus results. And as of the morning after the caucus, they still were not available. So it's just really a, a strong example of how faulty technology, so not necessarily hacked technology, can really go lead to questions about election results and create an opening for misinformation and conspiracy theories. These, these types of issues and these operational delays, they really play right into the hand of the cyber actors that we're seeing that are really thinking about it more from a misinformation perspective. So these small facts can be leveraged and turned into essentially what is, I'm sure, becoming a viral misinformation campaign. And I really think that what we need to be looking for in 2020 are things like that that aren't necessarily about the hacking of an election, but are really more about how one small thing can, can spiral out of control and can really make all of Americans doubt the confidence and security of the election systems. So I talk a lot about China and I talk a lot about uh, them stealing IP from companies in the United States and to get competitive advantages, uh, not only in, in their in their commercial space, but also in their, in their government space. More and more companies are producing this incredibly innovative technology, right? And so how can, how can these organizations in your mind ensure that they are sufficiently protecting their intellectual property against nation states and other nefarious individuals. I think that people really need to understand what information they have out there that might be attractive to, to the risk actors that you mentioned. So where is your IP stored? What do you have? Who has access to it? And then you can begin going through a set of logical steps to ensure protection of that data. But for example, Often companies that are involved in developing some of this highly sensitive intellectual property have a variety of connections to external third parties, either knowingly or unknowingly, that could ultimately be the vector these malicious actors would use to get in and get access to this information. Um, another point that we've heard and we've often heard conversations about is some of the law firms that are representing these companies that have a lot of valuable information. That's a great entry point, not to say that the law firms are any more um, at risk than any of the companies that are developing this intellectual property, but you need to be thinking as the creator of that property, who has access to it, where is it being stored, what are their data security practices? Because any third party that's accessing your information is going to likely be your weakest link because you may have a really strong understanding of what you're doing from a cybersecurity perspective, but the, those who also have access to your information, if you're not having dominion and control over their practices and policies, you're really going to be at a disadvantage. Uh, as from an organizational perspective, organizations should be creating cultures of security within their company. Every employee needs to understand the role they play in securing information. Uh, your weakest link is often something, a term you hear used here, but it is something that you really need to consider that every person on your system that might have access to your data could be the entry point through which it is compromised. And so that's why we always encourage continued cyber awareness trainings to ensure that those technological steps and measures are front of mind for everyone on your system. And all users just really need to know what the threats are, right? Because those who aren't necessarily involved in the creation or the distribution of intellectual property might not realize that they play just as critical of a role in keeping it safe. So those are some basics that I would think within an organization should be on their minds. Yeah, and we just have to keep pounding away that the use of third parties expands the attack surface and you have to manage that scalability issue with third parties if you're a large organization. You right. just got to learn how to manage it. You got to come up with the right tools to to make sure that you're doing what you can do with the resources that you have at bay. I want to talk a little bit about personal information and privacy. We spoke on, a, on the last episode, we actually talked about personal information being a modern currency, but we also talked about people being able to sell that. I, I could be able to sell my own personal data in the future. That's what 
that's what people see the future might hold for the way things are sort of shaping up in, in Congress and in other places. Um, at the heart of this debate is the question of transparency with the use of personal information. I saw Facebook once again in the news. Um, they can't seem to get out of the news when it comes to privacy. What should companies disclose about their use of data? I mean, should they disclose everything that they do or nothing that they do? I saw a company the other day saying, we'll never use your personal data unless you give us permission. And by the way, you could sign in with your LinkedIn password or your Facebook password. Come on, right? I mean, what are they using, what are they using this data for? I mean, it's just crazy out there, no? No, absolutely. I think it's interesting, the concept of privacy broadly. One thing that I've learned uh, in traveling the world in the last 12 years, talking to people about cybersecurity, is that privacy is actually a very cultural-driven concept. So uh, folks in different countries and continents have different views about what those rights should be. But I think from my perspective and operating largely in the United States market and across the Americas, that consumers really have the right to know how their data is being used. And so as a result, what my recommendation is that companies need to be ready to disclose specifics about their processes related to the consumer data that they're collecting. However, there's going to be a lot of reasons why they may be hesitant to do that. There's obviously a market value, like you mentioned. So there's there's a balance there that I think we need to strike and we haven't yet done. And I'm not exactly sure where the United States will come down on that decision. But data privacy issues are going to continue to be unresolved until I think there's probably either a surge from the consumers or it may end up need to be something that goes to Capitol Hill and we see what comes out of the legislation. But right now, I think there's a big question and I, we have to strike the balance uh, because the data continues to grow and people are going to continue to ask questions about where it's ending up. Well, when it comes to legislation, obviously we see a lot of people are pouring, you know, billions of dollars into uh, making sure that they're regulatory compliant. We got GDPR, we got CCPA. What's your opinion about these legislative uh, actions? I mean, what do you think uh, in terms of the success and failures that we're going to see? And uh, what do you, how do you think they're going to evolve into the future? Is there going to be any kind of streamlining of this legislation across at least the United States. So even the states don't start, everyone starts doing something different and, you know, costing millions and millions of dollars. How's it going to play out? Yeah, quite a few questions there. So I think what I think generally is that it really is important that folks are really starting to take awareness with GDPR, with CCPA. People are beginning to realize that there are some options for companies when it comes to the notion of their data and what they're doing with their data. So I think just having those terms be so so prevalent now, people are realizing that there's a question and probably a debate and discussion to be had. I think one thing we've often seen in cybersecurity is that California often leads the way across the United States for a variety of different legislative actions, not just uh, related to data privacy. So I think we will see, and I think we will we will see really who who's going to come in strong in this fight because from a consumer perspective, there are a variety of reasons why you want to know where your data is going. And I think that from a corporate perspective, there are a variety of reasons why it's difficult and sometimes impossible to disclose all of that and without having a huge regime change like we've seen in GDPR. But I do think right now we have a patchwork of different regulations, not just related to data privacy, but to all types of cybersecurity concerns across the United States. And it's really not getting the job done. So I, I think that cybersecurity and data privacy in a lot of ways is, can be a bipartisan issue. And I think it's a, a Place where we could see a lot of change and progress in the next two to five years. And I look forward to seeing who will really step up to the plate and start to have some of those tough conversations because I think we need to have them in order to move the ball forward. Yeah. Do you think there's a balance between elected officials and their need to protect the people that vote them from a consumer standpoint versus them being perceived like they're supporting big business? Like if they were to drive incentives for companies to protect data differently, would that change? So I think there, there obviously is a balance, right? Who, whose interests, I think this is probably something that applies to almost all the issues that are before the Congress, but I think there is a balance, right? There's a corporate interest in gathering as much data as possible and being able to use it in as free of a way as possible. And there's a consumer interest in understanding how your data is being used and maintained and stored and shared. And so I do think it could definitely see from the perspective that, of how could how could Congress and legislators be viewed in light of those decisions? There definitely is a way to see. Are are you on my side as your constituent, or are you on my side as a corporate constituent in your district? So I think there is definitely a balance, and I think that right now 
we have only seen the regime of GDPR and then just now CCPA. And we, we don't really know, I, I don't know, and I certainly welcome your all's views. I'm, I'm not sure where American consumers are going to come down on this. I do think they're going to trend to say that we need to see all of our data and where it's going and we need to be able to opt out. But the application across the U.S. businesses, I think, will remain to be seen how strong of a, a view they will take on that issue. Well, I personally think it's a very convoluted environment and it, it's costing billions of dollars to comply with various different regulations where if we just streamlined things, we could get to the same place and not maybe with, with not as much cost. But having said that, you know, you talk about where we're going into the future. I mean, have you seen any regulatory wins? I mean, is there any places where the industry has been allowed to grow and, and not be restricted, but at the same time, it, it, it imposed the the restrictions and the, and the protections for the individual that it intended? I, I do think that we have seen some changes in some of our regulatory agencies. I mean, the FTC, for example, has really stepped into the cybersecurity arena and begun to work with companies that have faced major data breaches and develop plans for improved cybersecurity over the course of a number of years. Uh, the SEC is another place where we've seen a lot of improved cybersecurity growth uh, that's, I think, really addressed some of the threats that Americans face. The enforcement actions that have come out of the SEC have really, I think, had a movement across the United States to make changes at companies that are going to be facing SEC perhaps oversight. And so I think one thing we've seen, for example, is often when I talk to companies, they're saying we need someone who has a cybersecurity brain on our board. In some cases that's required, but in some cases they're just saying that they want to have it. So I think that these are being driven not out of just a sense of this is what we ought to be doing, but out of some of these regulatory agencies that have made some decisions, issued some guidance, and some made some statements that we're really going to be looking at how your organization is operating from a cybersecurity perspective, and I think the improvements have been great. I actually haven't seen any real problems where I think that, let's say, innovation or other corporate growth has been stifled. I think they're all real changes for the better. Let's talk about blockchain for a minute. I mean, we can do a whole episode on blockchain, and the audience yeah. loves it. But every time we do blockchain you know, uh, topics, I mean, the, the, the listenership spikes a little bit. We've been hearing more and more about the use of blockchain in various different settings and different verticals. Um, what are some of the benefits of blockchain in your mind that we must be sure to protect and encourage people to use? So it's funny you say that, that your, your listenership grows when you talk about blockchain. I know when I was at the White House, sometimes people would say to me, who's in charge of blockchain? Who's doing the blockchain over at the White House? Because I think people really have a sense that blockchain is this sort of, it's a magic pill that everyone's going to take. And once we are all on the blockchain, everything will be solved. So <laughs> I think I think there are a lot of great uses for blockchain. It can be used to do do things across all types of industries and sectors. And I'm really glad to see that a lot of industries have implemented it, I think, to, to their benefit. So in terms of what we need to protect, I mean, it, it's in some ways, it's a very simple process. And I think there's, in addition to people thinking it's a bit of a, a magic pill, I think people also think that it kind of looks like quantum physics, right? But it really it really doesn't. It's a, it's a fairly basic process that we use to certify that information can be trusted and that we can better understand the processes through which information got from point A to point B to point C. I think that we really need to be looking as we use blockchain in larger industries and in sort of broad scale, huge amounts of data. We need to be looking at how artificial intelligence is leveraged against data that is on the blockchain that we might be seeing different targeting. Uh, but I do think that for the most part, there aren't necessarily pieces of the technology that I'm worried about getting into the wrong hands or maybe being taken advantage of because I really think that that overall people need to better understand what the blockchain is, how it's used, how it can benefit their organization, and consider where there might be opportunities to leverage technologies in a responsible way uh, to, to, to be able to tell people in the market how their data and how, their, how the information that they have can be trusted because of this technology. So on the flip side, what are the security concerns you think surrounding blockchain? I mean, and what can be done to mitigate some of these threats that involve blockchain when people are using these new technologies? Well, because blockchain does create this trusted information flow, if you will, that the, once the data exists, it exists, right? So if you've decided to track data via the blockchain in some ways, you're creating a, another source of that data exhaust that ultimately could be fuel. 
I think what we're seeing in some blockchain applications are just like any other computer systems that could have potential errors or risks, right? So there could be vulnerabilities in the code that's behind the blockchain applications. You could be seeing issues for the network environments in which the blockchain technology is being run. So they need to be thought of in the same way we think about other technologies. What are the risks that are being introduced? What are the vulnerabilities? Do we need to have additional additional analysis and validation of the code to ensure that there aren't errors that might introduce further cyber risks? And I think people just need to implement best cybersecurity practices to ensure that they're implementing the technology for their industry in a way that's really customized and that's gonna allow them to really leverage the benefits of blockchain for the positive of their users. How about AI? Do you see AI being used in the cybersecurity space effectively? Effectively. You know, I think that's another one, right? I think if you, if everybody's heading out to RSA this year, they can tell us how many talks on AI there are going to be at RSA. I think that there are a lot of ways that we can use artificial intelligence to do a lot of improved automation and approved behaviors on cybersecurity. So I think that one way we're seeing is that better understanding network vulnerabilities, there's automatic scanning that can be improved through the use of AI. I think that we're seeing on the side of of defense, definitely an opportunity for improvement. But on the other side, we're also seeing AI being used to improve the nature of the threat actors, right? The threats are being, being improved because of that technology being incorporated in on that side. So, you know, on the Emotet side, you're seeing the modern example of AI-powered cyber attacks. The Trojan is using spam phishing to get users to open these malicious email attachments, and they're sending out really contextualized phishing emails, putting themselves in the middle of email threads. And so are we going to be able to see a, a change not just on the defense side, but on the offense side? Yeah, I think we're going to see it on both sides, and we're going to have to be prepared that we're not just going to be able to leverage AI for good, but that it'll be leveraged against us for malicious purposes. Okay, Jordan, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, Senior Managing Director and the Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Mrs. Jordan Ray Kelly. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete 
free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guests, Senior Managing Director and Head of Cybersecurity for the Americas at FTI Consulting, Mrs. Jordan Ray Kelly. So, Jordan, this last, the last uh, segment of the episode, I want to talk about a few different things. I want to talk about, everyone's always talking about, hey, we're gonna, what can we do in terms of our strategy and our plan and what's our plan of action? Is there such a thing as a perfect cybersecurity protection plan? Can someone get it all right? You know, if I could, I probably wouldn't have to have, be having an eight to five job, right? I'd be, I'd be out <laughs> selling this cybersecurity perfect protection plan. No, there is not, right? That we haven't seen any any magic bullets when it comes to cybersecurity. And if if you find one, if you have a guest on that can uh, tell us about it, please please shoot me their name so I can talk to them about it. The the truth is that the cybersecurity threats are only getting worse, and in some ways our defenses aren't getting better. So there are a lot of things that people can do to reduce their risk and to be prepared in the event of a cyber incident, but there is no perfect plan. Uh, Having a plan is a great start. We often tell people having a plan is is really the best step, but I think that there's there's no way to completely avoid having cybersecurity incidents as a potential for your organization. So we talked a lot about legislation. We talked a little bit about what the government's doing. How much responsibility do you believe falls on the individual to protect their own data and online identity? I mean, what what, what responsibility do they have? on the individual. I think individual individuals need to take whatever steps they can to maintain their privacy. They need to not just blindly rely on companies that they interact with to do it for them, right? This means you need to read terms and conditions, not just click I accept at the bottom of the page. You need to understand <laughs> where your data is going, and but that might not be that realistic, right? So for your, if you're setting up a an Alexa device for your grandparents or you have a digital photo frame that you're just wanting to get online, people are are just doing the bare minimum to get these devices up and running. But they do need to realize that the risk that they're taking there is real. And so people need to reduce the amount of information that they allow to be available online, only provide data that they're comfortable with when it's being leveraged. I have an example for myself is that I have a fake date of birth that I have often used on sites to click through to the next page. And I actually started getting from sites unrelated to the sites where I would use that date of birth, birthday mailings. And I thought, man, this is very strange. I wonder why they think it's my date of birth. And I figured out it was from that that sharing of that data. Now, around the time of my Jeez. fake date of birth, I'll get things in the U.S. Postal Service mail that are 
wishing me a happy birthday. And so these pieces of data that you don't think twice about putting out there are going into not the hands that you are putting them into. So people need to be aware of that and they need to be sure that they're comfortable sharing that data outside of who they're just looking at on the website or speaking to face to face over the phone. It's going a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I often talk about there's some basic things that people can do using password managers, making sure they use different passwords, using MFA whenever it's available, just understanding what their attack surface is. Um, a lot of people don't even think about that, how many devices they have. I mean, they, you know, if their refrigerator is connected to the Internet, I mean, they just don't think about these things, right? Um, sure. And it's just so, but, you know, in, in, in fairness, it's, it is a lot to think about. It can be overwhelming. And, it, and it's a lot of time you have to put into this stuff. I mean, how many people know that their personal information is potentially being sold to companies so that it can be fed into artificial intelligence software? Like you just described, your, your information was being sold. How many people really understand that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think people don't understand it. I think there are simple steps, and you mentioned some of the best ones, two-factor authentication. If you're using a public, free, available email service that in there are several of them out there and you don't have two-factor authentication on that account, you should do that right now. Hopefully most of your listeners are savvy enough that they've done that uh, many moons ago. But I do think people need to consider that even the most sophisticated user doesn't necessarily think about all the potential device connections. For example, I recently reset up my home Wi-Fi and router and it's I was checking how many devices had been connected in the last six months and I think it was 29 devices and I thought to myself that can't be accurate and then I really went through and looked and it was accurate and so just in a in a two-person household you're talking about nearly 30 devices being connected to your Wi-Fi and each of those devices is a potential vector for cybersecurity threats. And so even people who are savvy about it and thinking about it all the time need to stop and take stock of that information that they're putting out into the world. All right. I'm a potential client. I got bad guys in the network. I realize something's wrong. I call you up and I say, hey, I've been breached. What's the first thing you tell me to do? Well, the first thing I probably tell you to do is don't panic because I do think when people are hit with a cybersecurity incident, they are a victim, right? And I, it's, um, it's very interesting because it's one of those fields, and this comes from being at the FBI, but it's one of those fields where people almost think you're responsible for it, right? You didn't do everything you could from a cybersecurity perspective, but I disagree. Those people that are hit with cyber threats are victims, and it's often a moment of panic, but don't panic. And then you must take action immediately. There's often a lot that can be done in the very immediate aftermath of a cyber incident that could improve the overall outcome for you as an individual or you as a corporation. So you really need to take action as soon as you realize something has happened and you need to make sure your employees know the same thing. So for a business email compromise, for example, which is, I think about the worst name of a cyber threat, if you could choose to give a name to one, but the business email compromise incidents that we're seeing that essentially relate to fraudulent wires being requested and sent out of organizations, there actually is a lot that can be done in the first 24 to 72 hours after an incident. But if the folks in your accounting department or your accounts receivable department don't know that, they may spend the first 24 to 72 hours trying to not get in trouble. So I think that mm. that education that we talked about earlier can really be critical uh, to making sure once you realize an incident has happened, you can realize that as soon as possible within your organization. So when we, when we get these calls, we look at where people are within that phase. I often say the day of the week that we always get called about cybersecurity instances is Friday afternoon. But that's not because this incident happened on Friday afternoon. It's usually because it happened Monday morning. And organizations spend Monday through Friday trying to figure out how they're going to handle it internally or how they're possibly not going to have to report it up to their very senior leadership. So take actions quickly. There's a lot you can do to contain and remediate. And you might need an outside organization to help you with that. You might not. And then you can look into a full, deep investigation heading into the final stage of eradication. And then by the end, you've learned a lot of what you need to do better so that you're better prepared in the future. So I think that that's, that's the nature of that conversation, but I always start with don't panic, but let's start to take action right away. Excellent. Excellent. You know, I know that FTI consulting recently released their 2020 resilience barometer, which was a survey of, I think it was about 2,200 executives basically measuring their companies against 18 regulatory operational cultural 
uh, leadership and some other technical threats. Uh, what, what concerns among cybersecurity professionals do you think the barometer underscored? Well, our research showed that one in four G20 organizations had experienced a cyber attack where assets were either stolen or compromised. I think that's a really important statistic, and that was just in the last 12 months. It really underscored the need for improved security. Yeah. Uh, and those that were negatively impacted by the cyber attacks, they, they lost revenue, they had reputational damage, and they lost customers. And so those are all real impacts for businesses on a daily basis. A single cyber incident can tarnish how an organization is publicly viewed, especially if that situation is not managed carefully. So the information flow out of your organization, both from your employees, but also amongst your, your consumers, your, your customers, and in the media can have a real impact on that reputation. And our research also showed that social engineering, which we include phishing in that, was the most common attack factor. 27% of large companies reported that they'd been negatively impacted as a result of phishing in the last 12 months. And the truth there I think people need to realize is that it's not that one person at your company is getting phished. These incidents don't happen in isolation. Over a third of the organizations who had been impacted by these incidents had lost third-party information, and they'd also been victims of phishing and social engineering. So there's real tie between these threat factors, and I think it shows that it's more common than people think, and people all, all across all industries need to be ready. So when you look at those metrics, I mean, it's, it's so resounding, right? Where is, it, where is everybody falling short? Well, the truth is that cybersecurity is often considered a cost center, right? People don't necessarily see an obvious and clear return on investment from investing in cybersecurity. But the cascading effects of cyber attacks really increase damages and fallout from these organizations. So it's not just how long did it take you to rebuild your networks. It's how long did it take you to get your consumers back. It's how long did it take your search results to change from being about being a victim of a, a data breach. Uh, so I really think that all organizations need to have not just plans within their information security departments. They need to have plans that incorporate their whole organization from a broad risk, risk perspective that can include having a risk mitigation strategy, which would mean that you would really understand what your organization's risk profile was from a cybersecurity perspective. As we talked earlier about having organizational-wide cybersecurity awareness, well, you also need to know what your critical assets are, and you need to have business continuity and incident response plans in place. Oftentimes, we deploy to, to locations to help them deal in the aftermath of a cyber incident, and they don't know where all of their networks are. They don't know where all of their assets are. They don't know who has admin access. And so doing a lot of baselining inventory well before an incident would happen can really help people be better off in the aftermath of an event. So there's a lot of room for improvement. Less than half of the G20 organizations we talked to and that managed these cyber attacks had actually done anything proactively. And only 10% of those organizations said that they had no cybersecurity gaps at all. And I candidly don't believe there are any organizations that have no cybersecurity gaps, even those that really have made a cultural shift, that really have made an organizational commitment to addressing cybersecurity gaps. Those cybersecurity professionals know that while you can do everything you can, as we discussed earlier, there is no perfect protection plan. So it's great to have all these plans in place and all the operational strategies and processes ready to go. How do you really inspire people to be more proactive about preparing and, and building a cybersecurity culture? I think that when you talk about how you can empower your employees to understand where they fall in the cybersecurity risk landscape, you can really make a difference. So that can help shift to a proactive mindset. The people that answer the phone, your receptionist can understand how they could be part of a social engineering scheme. A lot of cybersecurity training is not designed at that organizational level. And so I think they need to think about how they can better, how we can better instruct every person within an organization to understand the role that they might play. Uh, the research that you mentioned earlier showed that 28% of G20 organizations believe that, that employee awareness is their biggest gap, and 35% and have invested in this area over the past 12 months. So that's really interesting to me. Only one-third of organizations that we talked to had invested in this. So people can be the weakest link, and organizations can make that investment to turn them into their strongest assets. So if you have a strategy to actually achieve impactful gains, to make a difference, to not just ensure that everyone knows that you need to take your cybersecurity training, but it's just checking a box, 
then you can really make a difference. One change we've seen is we've done a lot of work with organizations to roll out custom, customized internal phishing attacks to really help employees understand what the types of threats look like. And it can become a real incentive for people to get excited that they've identified the phishing attack and they didn't fall victim to them. So how can you make the training innovative? How can you make it match the culture of your organization? All of these are things that can improve cybersecurity down at the employee and staff level. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know we kind of scrambled a little bit to find some time and you were kind enough to, to make room for us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, I can't wait to have you back. Hopefully you come back soon. Sure. <laughs> All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I remind our listeners, you can visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.